This is the Coach's Wife Life Podcast, where Kristen Urgel, a longtime TV sports reporter and college football coach's wife, goes one-on-one with her fellow coaches' wives. We will uncover the stories of the strong women who are the backbone of college athletics and athletics of all levels. And now, Coach's Wife Life. This podcast is brought to you by Brewer of Hope. Brewer of Hope is a nonprofit that supports medically fragile children. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation, you can use Venmo at Brewer-Hope or online at BrewerofHope.org. I'm so excited to have Nicole Phillips today. Nicole is the wife of Saul Phillips, head basketball coach at Northern State University. Thank you so much for being a part of us. My pleasure. Now, your life is absolutely fascinating to me. Okay, a quick Google search reveals this. You have to tell me if this is right or wrong. You want a car on the price is right. True. Uh-huh. Miss America pageant as Miss Wisconsin. True. TV anchor and reporter. Formerly, yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Breast cancer survivor. True. You have your own national podcast, The Kindness Podcast. True. Public speaker, author. True. I'm seeing that maybe your husband just saved a woman in a snowstorm about to have a baby in labor. Oh my gosh. Yes, that is true. Your house has been on the house hunters? It will be. (laughs) You've been on a national morning shows. Your daughter has raised more of her breast cancer research in a few years than maybe most of us will in a lifetime. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, it is. Success doesn't even come close to describing your life. When you were a little girl, could you envision this? No. The only thing I wanted when I was a child was to have walls without people on the other side of them. I uh, grew up in um, a really normal household with um, a mom and a dad and an older brother and an older sister. I was in third grade. My mom went back to work. She got a really well-paying job at a men's prison, and she fell in love with a prison inmate. So I was in fourth grade. I was the flower girl in my mom's prison chapel wedding. And so we went from a really normal life to um, something that was pretty fragmented. And, and, you know, things like food stamps became the norm. And um, we lived in places that had people above us or below us or on the other sides of the walls, you know, apartments and duplexes. And I just always remember wishing that we could just live somewhere where we couldn't hear the other people. And, um, you know, God's been so good. That was just always my, my wish. And, and now I have that, you know, I have a a husband who just is so good to me Mm. and I have three beautiful children and um, a house that's filled with kindness. And I'm so grateful for that because it does look a lot different than my own childhood did. Maybe you couldn't envision exactly how your life would play out, but you obviously are very intrinsically motivated. You knew you wanted to be somewhere in life and impact people. When did you know you wanted to compete in the Miss Wisconsin pageant? And what was it like competing in the Miss America pageant? Well, I knew I wanted to compete in the Miss Wisconsin pageant simply because I stumbled upon it. I was... um, made aware my senior year of high school that my father would not be paying my entire college tuition, which <laughs> should be like, <laughs> duh, right? But I, for some reason, I just assumed that there was a money tree somewhere that he was going to be pulling from. And he's right. like, no, 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 like scholarships and, you know, you're going to work and, and all of that 
So uh, there was a sign in my high school that said, Miss Appleton, the, the grand prize was a thousand dollar scholarship to any college of your choice. And so that was a lot of money. Yeah. And um, I competed in Miss Appleton. I won. I went to Miss Wisconsin and I lost. And what I learned through that experience was that there were scholarship dollars to be had, but also that each one of the women who was competing had a platform. They had the opportunity to speak on something that was really close to their heart. So for me, I went back three or four years later and won Miss Wisconsin and had the chance to speak about something that was close to me, which was overcoming crisis. So Mm -hmm. it was important to me to speak to other kids, especially about divorce and about moving and about suicide and about financial troubles and, and all of those things that, um, that so many kids go through. I wanted to be an encouragement for them. And so that's what I did my years in Wisconsin and going to Miss America was amazing. And the biggest claim to fame, Kristen, are you ready? Ready. I have to hear it. Okay. I was 11th in the Miss America pageant. Whoa, look at you go. I know, right? And this is how I know, because they choose the top 10, (laughs) and then they really don't tell you any of the people after that. So I can only assume I was 11th, right? Do you agree with me on that, please? (laughs) Absolutely 11th. Miss America pageant, 1998. But you did win the interview portion. I found that out. You, you had to do some deep digging for that, sister. I found it. I am a reporter. I found it. Yes, you are. Okay, so when did the path cross with you and Saul Phillips? Ah, well, I fell in love with Saul when I was in sixth grade, and no he was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And here's the weird thing. Like, his family was different from mine. He grew up with, you know, the mom and the dad and the, the, the love and an older sister and just a lot of great loyalty in that family in a time when, you know, kids are like, I hate my parents. You never hear that come out of Saul's mouth, never. And um, so, you know, we go to the park in the summer and run into each other and and I would just saw how differently he did life. And um, I was really taken with his integrity immediately. Um, And this is in sixth grade. I'm not even kidding. And um, Hmm. I moved away in eighth grade. That was when my mom's husband got out of prison. And so I moved in with my dad and we moved away a few hours. And I remember even in high school and in college, you know, people would say to me, what kind of guy do you want to marry? And I would always say, I want to marry a guy like Saul Phillips. And, you know, I didn't even know where he was living or what was going on with him at the time. But I was working as a TV anchor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and this is in the year 1999. And for two weeks in a row, I had dreams about Saul. And again, I had not seen him in eight years, nine years. And I was telling a friend and she said, this is, this is fate. Like you need to call him and find out where he is. And so I did, I called back to our little town of Reedsburg, Wisconsin, and I talked to his dad and I, um, I asked for Saul's phone, uh, for his address. I wanted his address. And his dad said, mm, I don't think that's a good idea. And the first thing that went through my mind, Kristen, was that his dad was saying this isn't a good idea oh. because I was the daughter of that woman in town mm. who had the affair with the prison inmate. That's immediately where my mind went. Mm. And so 
his dad said, I don't think that's a good idea. And then he kind of took a breath and he said, Saul never reads his mail, much less answers it. Let me give you his phone number. <laughs> oh, wow. So I ended up calling Saul and he happened to be recruiting. He's a basketball coach, always recruiting somewhere. And so he was coming into, he was in Michigan at the time. He was coming back to Wisconsin to recruit. And we went out to lunch four days later when he came through town. And the next day he told me he loved me. And the day after that, he told me we were going to get married. And I said, I know, like, it was weird. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we weren't hooking up on Tinder or anything. This wasn't like (laughs) that. It was like going out for dinner and having this great conversation and then saying like, we're going to be together, aren't we? And, and we both just looked at each other and said, yeah. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. an amazing story. And so children came along, right? Jordan, Charlie, and Ben. Yeah, I have a Jordan, a Charlie, and a Ben, and Jordan is uh, 16, and Charlie is 14. These should come faster to my brain, but, you know, they don't. I think about it every time, and, and ben, ben is almost 10. Wow. Wow. So let's talk about this timeline. How did you pull off this TV career and then kids coming along, and you can tell you've always done something with working inside, outside the home? I mean, how did you pull that off? Juggling and multitasking is really quite easy if you don't want to do any of it well, um, <laughs> I think. So I was a television anchor and I was working on the morning show. And that was, you know, I went to bed at 8.30 at night and got up at 4.30 in the morning. And that was great when Jordan was an infant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, by the time she was in kindergarten, I had switched over and was an evening anchor. And so that required me to go in at one and be done at 10 PM. Mm-hmm. Well, she's in school all day and then she gets out of school and mom's at work all night. Yes. And that just, uh, boy, there was a time in there and Saul had just gotten his first head coaching job mm-hmm. um, in North Dakota. And there was a time in there when we would look at each other and it was like one of us was constantly rolling our eyes at the other one. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, I ended up writing him a letter because he's a better debater than I am. He's faster on his feet. So I didn't want to get into a fight with him, but I needed him to know how I was feeling. And um, I said in the letter, um, I love you, but I don't like you. I know that we made a deal when we first got together that we would never bring up the word divorce, that that would never cross our lips. And um, so I'm not suggesting that, but something's got to change. And so I went on to tell him that I had put in my letter of resignation um, from the TV station. I didn't even tell him. I just put in the letter of resignation. I said, something has to give in this relationship. And I like being on TV, but you can't breathe without basketball and you're getting the chance to be a head coach for the first time in your life. And I just want to support that. I want to try to make this work. Mm. And, um, you know, it seemed at the time like a, perhaps a sacrifice for me to give up what I was doing, but wow, what a turn that gave our marriage Mm. and, um, what eventually 
an opportunity. It gave me to do what I love to do, which is to speak. I travel all over the country now and I speak and I write and like, I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also, that time not working gave me the opportunity to grow as a person because um, the truth of the matter is while I was multitasking, I was also an alcoholic. So I was a drinker and a smoker and an overeater and, you know, angry at Saul all the time. I just Mm -hmm. had, I had everything from the outside and yet Mm -hmm. nothing on the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when this, a little interaction of kindness happened that just woke me up Mm -hmm. and, and I started to chase kindness and I started to learn about what was happening in the body when people do an act of kindness or see an act of kindness or receive an act of kindness. And so I started writing a newspaper column about it. And mm. within a year of being really intentional about kindness, I had totally quit drinking, quit smoking, um, went off my antidepressants, re-fell in love with my husband. Wow. And this was all in 2011. Like this is wow. only, you know, nine years ago. And this radical life change has happened for me. And I'm, I just feel beyond blessed now that I get to be my husband's supporter, his biggest cheerleader. And I, I get to spread kindness. Wow. I am blown away by your honesty, by your tenacity, by your faith. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I do have to ask you about Mm -hmm what you feel like has been your toughest adversity that I feel like it hits some of us at maybe all of us at some point, some people haven't even gone through it yet, but what do you think was the toughest adversity you faced and and what did you rely on to get on those moments? You know, the toughest adversity is always depends on the season. My husband has lost his job. That's tough. Mm -hmm. I've had breast cancer, you know, that's tough. But if I look back to where I was nine years ago, my biggest adversary was myself. Um, And I just self-medicated, you know, I wanted to drink, I wanted to smoke, I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to just, you know, not have to be in charge of (laughs) myself and the kids Mm. and the house and that it just, everything seemed heavy and hard. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that looks a lot like depression. Um, So I think that that, being emotionally unstable was really the biggest growth I had to go through. And it was at that time that I had a friend, a new friend who invited me to go to a Bible study. And, you know, I said to her flat out, I am not a Bible study girl. Hmm. I'm not interested. And um, now this friend happens to be from Brazil and everywhere she goes, it's like a party. I mean, (laughs) It's like everywhere. Like you just look at her and you, she looks like um, Sophia Vergara Vergara from yeah. Modern Family. Wow. Yeah. She looks like wow. her. She acts like her. And so of course you want to just, you're just drawn to her. You want to be with her. So about the third time she asked me if I would come to her Bible study, I was like, fine, I will come. And, uh, and I did. And it should have been called an intervention because there were only two people there. It was mm. my friend and her neighbor. Wow. And we... Yeah, we watched this video from a woman named Lisa Turkhurst, and um, it was called More Than a Good Bible Study Girl. And there were, you know, I went in just to be with my, I didn't, I didn't really 
think that God had anything for me. You know, God had given me lots of opportunities and I kind of blew them. So I felt like, yep, he's done with me. And Lisa said two things in that, in the video we watched. She said, you are a child of God and God has big plans for your life. Hmm. And I was stuck by that because I thought I'm a child of God. I'm not the child of a woman who made a bad decision many, many years ago. I'm a child of God. Um, and you know, bad decisions aren't hereditary. They don't run in your genes. You know, you right. choose whether you or choose. not you're going to continue to be the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, that really was a sticking moment for me. And then the other part of it was God has big plans for your life. It wasn't, you know, God tried to use you when you were a TV anchor or God tried to use you when you were Miss Wisconsin or, you know, whatever it was that I, that I tried to accomplish, you know, no, the idea was that if I was open to it, there was still a way in which God wanted to use me. And mm-hmm. I wanted to know what that was. And so I said to my Bible study group, both of them, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and what's the practical application for that? And um, my, my girlfriend said, why don't you just pray every morning and every night, God, let me be a vessel for you. And I did. I said it morning and night. I didn't even know what a vessel was. I had no idea what I was praying, but God knew. And um, shortly after that was when I had this interaction with a girl in a shiny gold bikini at a public pool. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my first act of kindness that I really remember. Uh, and that was what set me off on this whole journey. Wow. So what was the act of kindness? Well, she was about 17 years old, wearing a shiny gold bikini with long blonde hair. I was wearing my mom suit because, you know, yeah, starts up at the neck, goes down to the, the feet so that nobody can see any bit of cellulite hiding on you. Um, ugh. And so uh, we sit down and my, my littlest one, Ben, was one and a half at the time. And gold bikini girl girl was sitting there watching a one and a half year old little girl. Well, my Ben and the little girl start sharing Cheerios and it's cute. And I'm watching gold bikini girl do sign language with this little girl, like more and thank you. And, um, and so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking this is the world's best babysitter. And so I'm trying to figure out how to not be a stalker and still get her phone number so I can get her to babysit for my kids, you know, so I can figure out what's going to make me happy. Right. Oh my gosh, are you even hating me right now? Like I was so pathetic. <laughs> I hear myself. I'm like, what's wrong with you, woman? No, oh. we've all been there. Oh, I had to slap myself up by side the head. Um, anyway, little Ben sees a woman across the pool with a mom suit with kind of flippy brown hair. And he starts yelling, mommy, 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 as in that's my mommy. And I'm like, no, no, I'm your mom. I'm your mommy. And gold bikini girl starts to laugh. And she says that happened to us just the other day. My daughter was looking at a girl uh, outside the window of our apartment, getting into a car and she started yelling mommy. And, you know, my heart sunk because it wasn't the world's best babysitter. It was the mom. Mm. And she had fewer resources than I did and a smaller support system. Mm -hmm. And she was so grateful to be there with her little girl. And so I ended up talking with her. And when we left the pool that day, this, this voice, it was the first time I had heard it. And it just said, go give her some money. Hmm. And so I parked my car, I walked across the parking lot and I basically verbally vomited all over her feet about 
how she inspired me and what a great mom she was and how I thought she was just going to be a great catalyst for change in our community. And then I threw 60 bucks at her, (laughs) but she, she gave me a big hug and we stood there, we hugged, we cried. And I got back into my minivan with this high, unlike anything I had experienced from any bad decision I had made before. And I thought if everyone knew what this felt like, everyone would want to try it. Kindness Mm -hmm. would be contagious. Kindness is contagious. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that was the start. I actually went home that night and wrote up that, what it felt like to be with her that day and that interaction and what it felt like to, to give. And, uh, I sent it into our local newspaper in Fargo, North Dakota. And I mm. said, I would love to write a weekly column about kindness. And they said, okay. And so people send me in their stories of kindness. Here we are nine years later, people still send me their stories of kindness, things they've done and how it made them feel or times that kindness showed up at just the right moment. And I put them in the newspaper every week. And now that run in newspapers in North Dakota and Minnesota, and of course, you know, online has grown so much bigger. So they're there as well. It's so powerful. It's so powerful what you're doing, sharing the kindness and it just keeps spreading. The other side of that though, that can be hard is to be the person that accepts kindness of others. Have you ever, if the bikini girl hadn't accepted my kindness, my life wouldn't have changed. There would have been no story. So she did me an incredible act of kindness by accepting that. And I talk a lot with people about accepting kindness because I have worked with people now who um, are bipolar and suicidal. And I've, I've had them say to me, when I feel suicidal or just very depressed, I will often, they say, I will reach out and I will say, you know, can I get you some milk at the store? Can I pick up your kids? Can I take you for ice cream. They said, I'm not asking for your benefit. I'm not asking to help you. I'm asking to help me. And so that's made me really, really much more aware of saying yes to that person who wants to be kind and bring us a meal. You know, it's like, Mm. oh, it's not about me. It's about you. Okay. Yes. And I feel like that on the other side of that as well is that you have walked through adversity as far as breast cancer. And in those moments when you're completely sick, and, and you seem like someone like maybe I, I'm taking a lot of, I, I, I'm very independent, right? I feel like a lot of coaches wives are independent, but sometimes you can find yourself in a situation when you do need help and you do need to accept that. But that also makes you can feel like it makes you feel weird in a way to have to accept kindness. Does that, I mean, do you, yeah. what ways do you help walk somebody through that? Well, I had, um, a woman, when my daughter was in elementary school, her son had, uh, this woman's son had um, cancer. And people would give her money and fundraisers and things like that. And, and she found out that our school was trying to put together this big auction. And she called me and she said, can you please tell them to stop? We can't be, we can't feel indebted to anyone anymore. We need to just try and be a normal family. And so I said, yes, I wasn't in charge of leading it, but I knew enough people um, to be able to say, hey, we, we need to back off. Um, and I think that sometimes it's okay to say, 
I just need to be alone. I need to just pull my, my little team in tightly and we just need to get back to some sense of normal. Um, but I also tell people, so that's one whole side of it when you really right. are like over it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's okay to protect your family. It's okay to be kind to yourself and say, you know what, we, we cannot do this. Um, and to put somebody else in charge of being the bad guy, right? <laughs> to mm-hmm. deliver the bad news. Yes. Put somebody else in charge and say, please, no more. Thank you. But the other thing that I think I, um, I talk with people a lot is, A, you know, there's no thank you note required. There's no, you know, keeping score of, of who sent you what during a time of trauma. You, do, you just, you know, throw the thank you cards out the window. And, you know, if you feel the need to text and say, hey, thank you, this was great, then fine. But do not give yourself any extra work. When people are trying to help you, allow them just to help. And the other thing is, um, you know, I I have a family of picky eaters. I have a gluten allergy, and so when people wanted to make us meals, I initially was like, no, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. And then I realized, okay, they just want to help, and they don't know how to help. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say yes, you know, we would love your meals. And then yeah, I have a a friend who lives in true poverty. And so it was, you know, were the sorts of things that I could give out, I could hand mm-hmm. out so that I felt even though I was in a position of needing help, I always felt like I had something to give wow. um, that wasn't requiring too much of me. Wow. And you in turn continued the giving. Mm-hmm. You were so unique, Nicole. I am <laughs> You have me speechless. I don't think so. I think people who look at kindness as, you know, fluff and unicorns and cotton candy, they don't get the teeth of kindness. But I think, you know, coaches' wives, mm-hmm. we get the teeth of kindness because yeah. we need it. You know, yeah. we need each other. Um, and other people in, you know, much more traumatic job situations, they understand that kindness has teeth. And so all I've done is really just trained myself to use kindness as my tool to give kindness um, when I'm having those days when I feel like it's all too much. We started writing in a newspaper nine years ago about kindness. When did you start your podcast? Um, I think we're on season three right now. We're ending the, we're heading toward the end of season three. So um, I started that after uh, I had breast cancer. We moved to Ohio five years ago. Uh, I had one year of just unpacking the house. The next year I had breast cancer. And the year after that, I started a podcast and doing a lot of speaking about breast cancer. Now I speak about kindness a lot too, but um, you know, October is always a very big month uh, for me because of being a breast cancer survivor, because, because there are so many people who just need encouragement. And how long ago, how long have you been cancer free? So when did that, what's the timeline on that? I was diagnosed on my 40th birthday. So May 7th, 2015. Wow. So this May, I will be five years out, which is Wow, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big. Yeah. And I got lucky. I didn't have to have chemo or radiation for me. I had a mastectomy. um, And then I'm on a drug called tamoxifen that just basically... (laughs) <laughs> they explained it in a basketball analogy. Like they took all the starters out of the game 
but you know, those guys who are warm on the bench, we got to make sure that they don't form a game plan. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. So the biggest change obviously was in 2011. How did you, how did the cancer impact you? The walking through that, did that change a lot of how you, your perspective of life? I don't know that cancer changed my perspective of life. It changed my perspective of my family and my husband. Uh, because I think 2011, when I went through the whole kindness revolution and stopped drinking and all of that, that, that was really life-changing. That was my wake-up call. When 2015 came around and I had cancer, I had always assumed that my husband didn't have an off switch when it came to basketball. That is, and I'm sure so many coaches' wives can relate to that. Like our husbands are like tunnel vision. That is the most important thing regardless of their sport, it is their, their thing. Do you feel that way? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, okay, good. (laughs) I was like, I started saying it and I thought, well, maybe I'm the only one. No, no, Um, no. It's their pulse. Okay, (laughs) Okay, good. So when cancer happened to see my husband become tender and vulnerable and just lean in so much to me, into what I was going through that, that, that just spoke such love to me because I became first and basketball became second and it had never been that way in our life before. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that I'm healthy, you know, yes, basketball can be first again, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's it's actually tied. It's tied with uh, the family now, but um, yeah, it did reprioritize for us and it made yeah. all of us in our household just gentler with each other. I think it had a huge impact on your daughter. I was blown away when I read what she has accomplished and and I think it's a testament to her, but to you as well. It's to me, I love looking at families and I love looking at the parents who like yourself and your husband are highly successful, but when you talk about impacting young men on the basketball court and you talk about impacting people over the country, your children are carrying that torch already of showing kindness and doing things for others and not expecting anything in return. Talk to me about Cozy's for a Cure. Well, I'm sure that you would agree in your household, and if you haven't seen it yet, you will with your young children. Anytime you go through an adversity, there is an opportunity um, to learn and to grow and to become compassionate, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what happens when we watch people we love hurt. Um, and so Jordan was in fifth grade when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and she wanted to do something as she says, like, it just hurt to sit on the sidelines and not be able to help. Uh, everything in our house is a sports analogy, apparently. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, she loves to sew, and she's loved to sew since she was in my kindergarten. So um, she made these little fabric, we call them cozies. Uh, they go around a coffee cup to keep your hands from getting too hot. You know, Starbucks has mm-hmm. them in cardboard, but Jordan made them in fabric. And she came to me and she said, mom, I'd really like to sew a whole bunch of these and maybe ask people for a $5 donation and I'll send them this. And, um, and, and then I could give the money to other women who have breast cancer so that they can, um, you know, get the treatment they need. 
she came to me and I was like, Oh, Joe, that's so sweet. I had just had surgery. And I said, that's so sweet. I can't help you. <laughs> I'm, I am tapped out. We are tapped right. out financially and physically and mentally and emotionally. Like I got nothing left to give and here this sweet girl wants to help. And I just know the helping is going to cost me a lot of energy and a lot of things. So I said, you can do it, but I really can't help. And she went to Saul. I didn't know this. She went to my husband and said the same thing. And he said the same thing back to her. So, you know, we are super supportive parents. Really, really (laughs) we are. And in this situation, the one time in our lives, we're like, we can't help. (laughs) What I ended up doing for Jordan is I just put it on Facebook one night. And she was hoping to raise $300. And by the next morning, she had raised $800. Wow. Within that, the two-month span we gave her to do this, she had raised $5,741. Wow. And, you know, the next year she raised $11,000. And then Walmart heard about it. And the National Susan G. Komen Foundation heard about it. And, um, and so Walmart bought 207,000 cozies. That they, yeah, right. And they were mass produced. And um, so uh, the company who mass produced them gave a check in Jordan's name to the Susan G. Komen Foundation uh, for $70,000. So wow. Jordan has, yeah, so she's raised more than $100,000 for breast cancer services and specifically for mobile mammogram units because wow. in the the areas, rural areas of the country, a lot of women are not diagnosed early enough because they're taking care of other people. Mm-hmm. And it might take an hour to get to the hospital where there's a mammogram uh, available. And, you know, that's, that's time off of work. That's time with the babysitter. That's gas money. So they just say, never mind. I'll, I'll worry about that lump another day. And then it becomes too late. So these mobile mammogram units are, are saving lives. And Jordan really wanted to be a part of that. Wow. When you look at all you have accomplished, that has to be your proudest moment of seeing it carried through your daughter. Oh, oh, she, she, she is special. I'll tell you something that I've never told anyone before. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, This is terrible. Uh, I'm starting to second guess myself, but I'll say it anyway. Um, When I found out I was pregnant um, with a girl, I cried. Because my mom and I had such a tumultuous relationship for so many years. We have a beautiful relationship now. It's been totally, totally healed. But we had such a tumultuous relationship for so long that I didn't know if I would be able to raise a girl. I didn't know if I could have that sort of a connection um, with a female like that, um, a blood relative like that. And so I just, I remember crying and being like, okay, you know here we go. And I know now, as I look back on that, that God gave me um, this special girl uh, as a gift. You know, there's nothing that I could have said or done or demonstrated, nothing. Uh, What she has has been put in her heart um, by her loving creator. Uh, and that's, that's the plain and simple truth. And, and Saul and I get to be a part of it. We get to be around it. Um, but, but what she has is, is something that, you know, it wasn't taught or caught. It was, it was placed in her before she was born. I'm certain of it. Wow. And, um, yeah. 
And the boys are great too. Don't let me get you wrong. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the Precious. boys are special too. But I wasn't afraid of raising boys. I was afraid of raising a girl. Mm. And what a unique and compassionate Jordan Phillips. I want to meet her as well. Wow. Yep. What she has done by the age of 16 is phenomenal. I'm, I'm yeah. blown away. This whole podcast, I keep saying the same thing. I am blown away. Um, I do ask some of these questions, the toughest, uh, some of the toughest part about being a coach's wife. And I know we've gone on for a while, but I want to ask you a couple of these before I let you go, which okay. is, um, you know, he's a highly successful coach. He's coached different levels of basketball. What do you think you've done or at least tried to do that has had some bit uh, played a part in, in the success of his career? I keep the home front stable so he can come and go as he wants. And he knows he never has to worry about what's happening at home. It's good stuff. What do you think is the toughest part about being a coach's wife? Oh, toughest part. Uh, this is terrible, but if any other coach's wives have had a level of success, you know, we went to the NCAA tournament. We won uh, the first round of the NCAA tournament and that was cool. Um, in that moment where he wins Everyone wants a piece of him. And the last person who gets a piece of him is the wife because everyone needs him. And that was hard because I wanted to celebrate with him. I wanted to be a part of it. And I, I could not be a part of it because he had to be on for everyone else. Um, and I'm talking like really specifically, like right after the win, when, right. you know, you're like, oh, yay, we hug on the court and then he's whisked away and I'm standing there with the children like well I guess we go home and go to bed now <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah so so that was tricky and of course you know losing a job is tricky uh watching your husband um you know it's it's ego crushing oh yeah I, it's the it's hard to describe to people that aren't in this business it's not necessarily about the money it's just oh there's so much to it when they lose a job uh, it's hard to yeah Oh, and there's so much pressure. Do you think there's yep. some things you try to remind him of on those tough days when you don't know when the next job is going to come? Well, I just always point him back to the fact that God has always led us where we need to be <laughs> in ways we never could have imagined. Um, and God's never gotten it wrong for us. So, you know, we just, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, trusting. So do you get into the Enneagram thing by chance at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what number are you? So is it the nine or is it the seven? The one that always has to, be, I think I'm a seven. The one that always has to be um, looking for the next adventure. Yes. Yeah. I think, at the, I think you're right. Yeah. I would also yeah. say you would have to be an achiever as well. I think there's some characteristics there. Well, I don't, yeah. I'm, I don't what number is the achiever? The, I don't remember. A three. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I think you're, um, you got some of those as well. But anyway, I was trying to think, you know, both of you are so accomplished. I mean, what kind of practical ways do you guys try to stay connected to the season? Do you have like a lunch date you try to do or? That's interesting. I did put a new, because I've been traveling so much more for my own work, I have decided that I would uh, be really connected with the things that I can go to. Because so for so many years when there were recruiting lunches and, and um, you know, breakfast or um, booster events, I wouldn't go. I would stay home and he would go because I would be taking care of the kids. 
so, and I don't really, you know, I don't like to go out at night. I like to be in my pajamas at seven o'clock at night. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm, I'm, I am, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. And so to me, like, ugh, I don't want to go out to breakfast and talk to strangers. Um, <laughs> but I made a decision uh, this season that I was going to uh, really try to connect with my husband in this new job just by being present for him. And we've had a lot of fun with that. Like, it's been like, it's like date night when we go out for dinner with the recruit or, you know, like a breakfast together. It's really, it's been really, it's been really fun. It has, I bet it has been fun. I love that aspect to it. I absolutely love it. I feel like it's our, I get a little babysitter. It's our time to go, you know, be a team at it. You know, it's, I get to be involved in that team thing. I get the team piece of it when I'm with him recruiting. And there's no no better feeling than when we get in the car afterwards and he'll look at me and he'll go, you're really good at that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What do you think some of the biggest ways you can be an asset? and add value to your husband's career as a coach's wife. Okay, this is really going to really bother some people, but I'm going to say the word out loud. I think being subservient is important. And I say that really gently because, um, you know, my husband um, is like as chill as they come, but I still will run things by him. Even if I know I'm going to do it in a particular way, (laughs) right? you know, like I just bought a convertible and, and I knew I was going to get that car. I was trading in my other car. I knew I was going to do it, whether he wanted me to or not, <laughs> but <laughs> I still said, "Hun, what do you think? I sure would like this, but gosh, I hate to do it. And maybe it's not smart and whatever. And he of course came back and said, Oh no, you should do that. And, and so I, um, I make sure to, I, I try to keep our house as drama free as possible. I really try not to nag him. I try to let him be the man of the household, which I feel like is good in a marriage. I just I think it's biblical. I do too. What do you think is the most rewarding aspects to you about being a coach's wife? Wow. Um, we have been given this opportunity to have a platform that so many people don't get. When we move to a new city, just because I'm the coach's wife, people want to talk to me and find out what's, what interests me. And so I get this opportunity to talk about kindness in a way that I wouldn't if I weren't a coach's wife, because nobody would ask, but simply because of what he does, I get to do what I do and um, have more of an effect, a ripple effect on the people around me. Love it. Rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. What's the last book you've read? Love does by Bob Goff. Read it. Coach surprises you and walks in the door with concert tickets. What would be printed on that ticket? Mercy me. Yes. Everyone has a few things that might need replacing around the house. Maybe it's in your closet, garage. I don't know. What's the ugliest thing you own? I have slippers with little mops on the bottom of them. They're pink and white polka dots. And they mop the floor as I walk. (laughs) I need a picture of these. (laughs) They're pretty awesome. I got them at a garage sale. Oh, they were secondhand. <laughs> and they were second. Well, they were new, but secondhand. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're in the box still, but it was a garage sale. Oh, okay. All right. Those aren't gross at all. Okay. If you could have dinner with someone. <laughs> what? If you could have dinner with someone other than a family member, current or from history, who would that be? You. 
Ah, no one's ever said that. We got to make that happen we for do. sure. Okay. Everyone listening, you can come along too. Yeah, let's do it. A big, a big reunion, a big party. Let's do it. Okay. You get a night alone. What show would you binge watch? The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You lock your keys in your car. Husband's at practice. Who is the first person you call? My best friend, Andrew, who lives three hours away and could not help me, but can always talk me off the ledge. <laughs> you have to have one of those. Mm -hmm. If coaching were not a profession, what would your husband be? He would be the guy who works the karaoke bar at, uh, you know, at the club. <laughs> so he actually would, he'd, he'd be the one that sings all the karaoke songs until the next person signs up to sing. <laughs> Is he good? <laughs> Oh, he does a mean Neil Diamond. Coming nice. to America, oh, he can bring the house down. Nice. Okay, what sport can you beat Coach Phillips in? Any card game. What's your favorite fast food restaurant? Culver's. I have never eten there. Oh, it's it started in Wisconsin, which is where we're from, but it's now a chain restaurant and it's delicious. Okay, we have burgers here and custard. Okay, we have one in Lawrence. I'm going this week. Oh, yeah, totally, totally, totally. If you had a superpower, what would that be? Invisibility, because I'm very nosy. I want to know what's going on. <laughs> That's the reporter in you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing with us. This has been phenomenal. I want you guys to check out Nicole's podcast, The Kindness Podcast. It is on iTunes. Is it anywhere else? Stitcher, NPR, um, Google Play. My website is braveandkind.net or nicolejphillips.com, either one. And all of Jordan's cozy stuff is, um, her story is on my website as well. Okay. Follow her on social media, Nicole J. Phillips. You heard it. Nicole J. Phillips, follow on social media and her website, nicolejphillips.com. Listen to her podcast by the cozies. We love these people. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Ruler of Hope. Ruler of Hope is a nonprofit that supports medically fragile children. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation, you can use Venmo at ruler-hope or online at rulerofhope.org. Make sure to subscribe to the Coach's Wife Life podcast. And for a replay of this episode or previous episodes, visit coacheswifelife.org and follow us on social media at Coach's Wife Life.